message is entitled, The Feast of Unleavened Bread, coming from Exodus 13 as we continue our series this morning in the wonderful book of Exodus. I hope you are learning much. I am learning much as we go through this book and make connections to our lives today. Well, I remember the first time that I attended a Sunday service at a Sovereign Grace Church. The bulletin read, Welcome to our Sunday morning celebration service. I remember thinking, wow, we came on a special Sunday. Celebration Sunday. I didn't, wasn't quite sure what we were celebrating. But I thought, wow, that's pretty cool, huh? Look. I mean, it looked like a regular Sunday church service. I would say a few more people that I was used to were raising their hand. And there was one guy up front, a short guy up front, in the very first row, thinning hair and back, who was jumping up like a pogo stick <laughs> during worship time. I couldn't figure it out until after the worship ceased and that man got up. He's the pastor. Well, that pastor is none other than Danny Jones, who Al had spoken about, and who will be here in a couple weeks. And for those of us who are new, we greatly respect Danny Jones as he oversees our church. But you see, he was entering into a Sunday celebration. Thank him announcement time. They mentioned that the following week, this church, along with a group of other churches, were going to come together for what they called a celebration conference. There's that word again. I remember thinking, is this some new... Hype? Is this some new marketing strategy? Some ploy? This word celebration? What's going on? I didn't get it. It took me a while to see what all the excitement was about. But I can say, 11 years later, here I am preaching at a Sunday celebration service. God is so kind. He is so merciful. So my question to you this morning is, do you get it? Do we get it? What is the meaning behind all this talk about celebration? You see, celebration, my friends, is God's idea. When we celebrate as biblically defined, we are not co-opting the world's idea in trying to sanctify it. We're not trying to sanctify Mardi Gras or New Year's Eve celebrations or South Beach or the celebration in New York City after the Giants won the Super Bowl. No, we're not trying to do any of that when we say celebration. You see, the world has perverted God's idea of celebration and oftentimes, sadly, used it as a license to sin when God's idea of celebration is a means of grace for you and for me. The good news this morning is God is not a killjoy. He is the author of life. He is the author of joyous celebrations and, yes, of feasts. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are seven biblical feasts mentioned. But as we go to the New Testament, Christ as well was quite fond. Speaking of what? The wedding feast. The wedding feast to come. I don't think it's any coincidence that Christ performed his first miracle, his first sign. Where? At a wedding feast. In Cana, John 2. I don't think it's any coincidence. At the end of the Bible, we read in Revelation that we can anticipate and look forward to the wedding feast, the supper of the Lamb. Celebration is God's idea. 
Today, we're going to look at one of these seven biblical feasts. The first feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a feast which followed on the hills of Passover, which we've been talking about the last several weeks. That is the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. It's the feast which marked what? The beginning of the new Jewish calendar and year. It's the feast in which they were to order their lives and worship God, all Jewish families. It's a feast in which they were to stop all their work in commerce for one week in order to celebrate. It's the feast which was multi-generational, and it says in God's word, was to be celebrated forever. Why was this feast of first importance? Why was it such a big deal? Here's the question. How does it apply to us? Gentile Christians today living in South Florida, living in Miami. May I suggest that as New Testament Christians this morning, we are called to celebrate and join in this feast. In other words, in your notes, the theme for this morning, as Christians, we are called to celebrate God's deliverance. Just what we celebrate, how we celebrate, and why we celebrate is the topic of today's sermon. With that in mind, let's open up the Word of God to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, where we left off last week. I'm going to start with verse 3. What we have listed in the notes for today's passage is verses 3 through verse 16. But my burden this morning is particularly for the feast itself, as we read in verses 1 through 10. The latter verses, verses 11 through 16, is really what Al spoke about last week, as is summarized in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. But we're going to talk about the feast this morning, starting with verse 3. Let us read. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. From year to year. And so we will today. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would incline our ears this morning to hear from you and to hear your word. Open our eyes this morning. Open them as wide as saucers to be able to comprehend and to behold your deliverance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask this morning that you would give us undistracted, undivided hearts that we may celebrate and take joy in your deliverance 
as your people, the people of God. Oh, Lord, fill us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Impart faith to us to hear, to receive, and to respond. And yes, to celebrate, we pray. Amen. Well, in your notes, number one, if we are called to celebrate, the question is then, what do we celebrate? Let's look at the text we just read. Verse three, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord, by the strength of hand, the Lord brought you from this place. We read in verse eight, when your son asks, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I think the text is clear. What do we celebrate? We celebrate, as God's people, our deliverance from slavery and death by God's mighty hand. But as Christians, we don't stop there. We need to flash forward 1,400 years to understand the full story. You see, like the Passover, the feast, which came on the heels of Passover, pointing back to a defining moment in Israel's history. But it didn't just point back. It also pointed forward to a greater deliverance found only in Jesus Christ. In other words, the feast was an historical event to be celebrated, but it was also a prophetic event as well, as we see in Jesus Christ. How can I make that statement, you ask? Why? Because Christ did. You don't have to turn there, but listen to his words at the Passover supper. We read in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they, as the disciples, were eating. What were they eating? The Passover meal, which was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 1,400 years later, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat. This is my body referring to the unleavened bread they were about to partake of. Jesus is saying, I am that unleavened bread. But we shouldn't be surprised. For a year or two earlier, at Passover, we read of another story. It says in John chapter 6, I believe, verse 4, now it was the time of Passover, read, the Feast of Eleven Weeks, when Christ fed miraculously the 5,000. What did he say after that? He made this incredible statement. He said to the people, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life from heaven. So back to our question, what do we celebrate? We've been given a helpline, haven't we? We've been given some clues here. We've been given the final answer. The final answer is this. We celebrate what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So maybe better put, it's not what we celebrate, it's who we celebrate. And who we celebrate is Jesus himself and what he did at the cross. Christ, the Passover lamb, Christ, our unleavened bread. This is all another way of saying, which you've heard here before, of celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to slow down, though, for a moment. I want to be very clear at this point in what we mean when we say the gospel, and thus what we are celebrating. Simply put, as we've mentioned here many times from up front, the gospel can be summarized this way in five words. Christ 
died for our sins. Now, I think when most of us hear that, we think, yes, Christ died for our sins. And in doing so, God has forgiven us of our sins. Yes, and amen. It is all that. But there's even more. Not only did Christ die to pay the penalty for our sin, he died to deliver us from the power of sin and the pollution of sin. Let's talk about that if we're going to understand the gospel in its full orb glory. Christ died to deliver us from the penalty, the power, and the pollution of sin. Let me explain. Christ died to deliver us from the penalty of sin. In other words, as we have talked about in the last several weeks, God passed over our sin because he did not pass over his son. It is his son who took God's holy, righteous wrath upon himself, who paid the penalty in our place. That's what we mean when he paid the penalty for our sins that we deserve. But secondly, Christ also freed us from the power of sin in our lives. As Christians, we have been united with Christ and sin no longer reigns in our bodies. Jot down at this point, just to write in your notes, Romans 6, 1 through 14 for this point. And going back out to the previous point, he delivered us from the penalty of sin, write down Romans 3, 19 through 26. Penalty, Romans 3. Power of sin canceled, Romans 6, 1 through 14. You see, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer, as Christians in Christ, in bondage to sin. Oh, sin, sin still lives in us. But we don't live in sin to sin any longer. That is the point. That is the gospel. We cannot forget that. Do you recall the illustration that John Ensor gave several weeks ago? Oh, yes, we still sin, do we not? But we're like a sheep who falls into a pit. When he falls into the pit, he realizes he shouldn't be there, and he climbs out of the pit by God's grace to fall in no longer. But those who are not in Christ are slaves to sin. They're like pigs who fall into the mud and wallow there, not wanting to get out. They are enslaved in bondage to sin. Oh, friends, Christ not only delivered us from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. And thirdly, Christ delivered us from the pollution of sin. Jot down a number of verses here. Uh, jot down 1 John 1, nine. Also jot down, well, this passage, Colossians 1, verse 22, that he has delivered us from the pollution of sin. We have been cleansed. There is no shame. We are declared holy, blameless, pure, spotless, white as snow, in his sight. One verse that puts this all together for me. It's the verse we actually, was our theme verse for the book of Titus. If you recall, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Let me just quote verse 14. And Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. In other words, to redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin. But it doesn't stop there. There's a conjunction. And to purify for himself a people, that's you and me in Christ, who are zealous for good works. Isn't that beautiful? That sums it up, what Christ has done in delivering us from the power, from the penalty of the power and pollution of sin. Do you see the parallels? 
we have reason to celebrate this morning. We have three reasons. We have three times over the reason to celebrate. We cannot properly interpret this passage unless we get the gospel right. Just as God delivered his people from his own wrath at Passover, he's delivered us from his wrath. Just as he delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, he has delivered his people from the slavery of sin. Just as God delivered his people from Egypt, the idolatrous, unclean, alien Egypt, to bring his people out to make them holy, so he has cleansed us from sin and made us pure in himself. That's what we celebrate. But it begs the next question, doesn't it? If that's what or who we are to celebrate, just how, Corey, do we celebrate our deliverance? How should the Feast of Unleavened Bread inform our thinking? Does it mean that we just eat flat Cuban bread? There's no such thing, is there? Unleavened bread? Does it mean we eat peanut butter and jelly crackers instead of sandwiches? No, it means much more, much more than that. How do we celebrate? Let's look at the text once again. Verse 3 of chapter 13. Then Moses said to the people, remember, key word, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember this, God's deliverance. Look at the next sentence. No leavened bread shall be eaten. What's he talking about? We are to remember God's deliverance in a very specific way by intentionally recalling, bringing to mind God's deliverance. How was that done for God's people in the Old Testament? It was done through purging their houses of leaven and partaking of unleavened bread. It reminded them of the haste in which they had left Egypt from the night of the Passover. It reminded them of God's deliverance. Looking back one chapter, Exodus 12, verse 34, says this, So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. You see what's happening here? The point is not that we're to eat unleavened bread or bound to eat saltine crackers once a year. The point is this, that we are to continue repeatedly recount what God has done for us in the gospel. In other words, we repeatedly preach the gospel to ourselves. Where have you heard that before? I'll let you know, that phrase, preaching the gospel to ourselves, did not originate with Palm Vista. It did not originate with Jerry Bridges, where he mentions in his book, Disciplines of Grace. No, this idea of preaching the gospel repeatedly, continually to yourself, originated with God in his word. And we find it right here, preserved in this feast of unleavened bread. See, it's easy to think, is it not, as, quote, mature Christians, that we need to move on from the gospel. That somehow the gospel served its full purpose when we were initially saved. I love the quote you've heard before many times, probably from David Pryor. We're so fond of this quote. We never move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. If we were to move on from the gospel once we received it and become regenerate and were saved as believers, there would be no reason for a feast 
every year. As it says in God's word, as a statue forever. There would be no reason to keep preaching the gospel, to ourselves at least, as believers. I mean, let's move on, shall we? Oh, friend, but we don't dare. We don't dare. We are called by God to celebrate the gospel joyfully, continually remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel is a lot more than just a mental activity, a cognitive exercise. This word remember in the Hebrew, zakar, is a rich word. It doesn't mean just remember as in recount a fact. It implies action as well. To remember the gospel is to act it out, to live it. Do you recall Al's analogy last week? Remember the Alamo. He began a sermon with that. What did that mean to the people who heard that at that time? Did it mean, remember, in 19, excuse me, 1836, there was a 13-day siege in the mission at San Antonio called Alamo? No, it was a rallying cry. It was a call to action. Remember the Alamo. It was a call for Texan independence, for revolution. That's what remember meant. Likewise, that's what we have here in Scripture. Remember isn't simply a mental activity. It implies an action, responding to that which we are remembering. And that which we are remembering is the gospel and God's deliverance. And that's how we should live. So how do we celebrate? We remember. We recall. But in B as well, we don't recall it. We live it by living the gospel, by living according to our new nature. To help us understand this next point, we have to understand a little bit about leaven and its metaphorical use here in the New Testament. First, a little biblical baking lesson, okay? In Bible times, maybe still today, I don't know, leaven was a fermented dough that was held over from that batch of dough and held over for the following week. During that week, that dough would ferment and it would be placed in the new batch of dough to give it lightness like yeast, so that it would rise. You see, leaven symbolizes that fermentation process and implies a disintegration, a corruption, a state of uncleanness. In the New Testament, leaven is often used as a metaphor for evil and its corrupting influence. Time and time again, we hear Jesus saying, remember, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. Last week, we spoke about consecrating ourselves, right? To God. How? By giving up our rights. This morning, we're talking about consecrating ourselves to God by giving up our sin, the leaven in our lives. The leaven in your life that defiles you, and speaks falsely about the gospel and who you are as one who has been made pure and is seen as holy without blemish in Christ. God is saying, give it up. Quit. What sin do you need to give up this morning? What comes to mind right now? You know what I'm talking about. We all have our areas, patterns of sin that we are constantly battling. God is saying, based on your deliverance, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, and the pollution of sin. He's saying, quit it. Purge it. Get serious. 
celebrate the gospel and believe it, what he's done in your life. That's how we celebrate the gospel. And it has implications for us today as those who are still sinners. Yes, saved by God's grace. No longer slaves to sin, but still battling sin each and every day. That leads to the final point. It's the payload. It's the application of the sermon this morning. We talked about what we celebrate, how we celebrate, why do we celebrate. We celebrate, first of all, because we need to celebrate. <laughs> because we are sinners. We are sinners who so often forget the gospel of Jesus Christ that I had just mentioned. In our fight against sin, in our fight against the flesh, in our fight against the enemy of our souls. Each day, I need to celebrate the gospel. You know what? I seem to wake up each morning and have it all wrong. It's all about me living the Corey-centered life. I have to rehearse the gospel over and over. Just the other day, I went to work out. I've been working out in the gym for about 15, probably 20 minutes. I noticed this guy who was smiling and pointing at me. Now, I had my headphones on. I didn't know what he was saying. Frankly, I don't like guys smiling at me in the gym, okay? So I just ignored, went on in business. 20 minutes later, I'm working out. You know, they have mirrors all around in these gyms. And I realized that my shirt was inside out and backwards at the same time. I had three tags protruding from my neck. And I had no idea. What an idiot. I've been working out. Guys are pointing at me. I didn't even know it. How did I feel? I mean, just, you know, just choking me, you know? Oh, my friends, we need that mirror. We need the gospel. Oh, man, do I need it. I need it daily. See, likewise, without the gospel, we lose perspective. Our perspective becomes inside out and backwards, doesn't it? So easily. That was undoubtedly God's concern and warning when he gave him the feast of unleavened bread. Let's look at verse 5, chapter 13 of Exodus. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all the otherites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. In other words, he's saying to them, he is saying to us, you'll be surrounded by pagans who will eat your soul for lunch if you, don't, if you forget God and all his benefits. You will be prey. You will become like them in their sinful ways. And you won't even know it. Your shirt will be inside out and backwards. You know what? It will seem right to you. And it will seem right. Isn't that scary? It's so easy to think that your life should look like that of your neighbor. Oh, that we should dress like them, talk like them, drive like them, vacation like them, spend like them. In the negative sense. I'm speaking in the immodest, greedy sense. But the gospel says, I've delivered you from all that. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. 
we live right here, South Florida. You know it. I know it. In the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites. Oh, yes, it's called South Florida. Yet we are to be different. We are to be holy, set apart. We are to be pure. We need the gospel daily to remind us of who we are in Christ and what he calls us to be. And that to be is to be holy. We are called to be in the world, right? But not of the world. We don't wholesale spurn the culture in which we live. I'm not talking about being a holy, self-righteous hermit this morning. Quite the contrary. We are called to faithfully, joyfully celebrate the feast in the very land that God has called us to, right here in South Florida. The land of the Canaanites and the Hittites. Why? Oh, that the people, our neighbors, would ask, as our children, what's this all about? All the celebration. What's this getting up early on Sunday morning and going to a Sunday celebration service really all about? What's this home group stuff anyway? What's all this singing and laughter? For Pete's sake, you're not even drunk. You're having fun. You're laughing, enjoying one another. What does this mean? You say dress modestly. What's the meaning of serving one another? These meals that you provide, for those you don't even know. These people you're moving. These people you're serving. What's this talk about courtship anyway? What does it mean? Bingo. That's celebrating the gospel. You see, the gospel and the gospel we celebrate is not the gospel we celebrate is not only for ourselves. It is for ourselves, but it's also for a watching world, including the Canaanites and the Hittites. Friends, parents, and no one is watching you more than your very own children. It says in your notes, celebrating the feast was essentially a means to preserve or perpetuate the good news of God's mighty deliverance, the gospel. Let's read from verse 14, Exodus 13. And when in time to come, your son asks you, and he will ask, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Our children, our future as a church is in jeopardy should we assume the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must live the gospel. We must demonstrate the gospel before our very children, before our neighbors, before our coworkers, and everyone in sight with a contagious, joyful confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. We will not be a seeker-sensitive church here in Miami, that softens the gospel, oh Lord, or compromises its message in any way. If you're a guest this morning, I'm so glad that you are here. And I want you to know we are committed to proclaiming and celebrating the gospel. You may not always feel comfortable, comfortable here. We hope that you would. We're not seeking to embarrass you. But we're not going to hold back either. This gospel is too precious. It is the life that we breathe. It is what we sing about. It is what we teach over and over by God's grace. Well, perhaps for some of you, this is foreign to you this morning. If it is, please, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please ask, Corey, what does this mean? <laughs> Explain it to me a little more. Or better yet, or, and also, go to Alpha this Thursday night as well. 
to find out what this means, to know, to respond to, and yes, to celebrate the gospel. We want to tell you, because we want you to personally join in the celebration. It's a celebration that doesn't end when the clock hits 12 here at Mylonex Middle School. It's a celebration that is seven days a week. And it comes to our final verse. Verse 9 of chapter 13. And it, that is being the feast, shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. What God wants us to see here is not that we should wear phylacteries or small boxes on our forehead or on our arm as Orthodox Jews do. No, that we are to have the gospel emblazoned on our hearts. That's what I believe this means. That we're to celebrate the gospel each Sunday here at Palm Vista. To celebrate the gospel on Wednesday nights as we meet in home group. And as we apply it and live it each and every day. So the conclusion. Are you celebrating the gospel? In a few moments, not quite yet, in a few months we're going to sing. Oh, may conviction pierce your heart. May grace flood your soul. May hope for change be imparted as we sing and celebrate the gospel. But you may ask this morning, Corey, I, I hear that. I, I hear what you said at the gospel. I, I want to know more. How can I personally study? Well, I have some resources for you this morning I want to recommend. I'm going through it right now. It's been so helpful. It's called a gospel primer. I don't think we have it yet at a resource table, but it's by... Milton Vincent. If you want to explore more of this gospel that we're speaking about, to learn more what it means to celebrate the gospel, to experience the gospel, I encourage you to get this book. Another book by C.J. Mahaney. It's called Living the Cross-Centered Life. Keeping the gospel the main thing. Two very accessible, I believe easy reads, but very helpful, very fruitful That's what it means to celebrate the gospel on a daily basis. That's one of the book. It's called the Bible. (laughs) Romans 3. Romans 6. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Read, read again. Last night, I came across in my bookshelf an old book. It's my very first Bible. I opened it up, had my name in it. It was dated April 24th, 1977. It has my name in it. It's presented to you by Bethany Community Church. That's in Seattle, Washington. And my Sunday school teachers and my pastor signed it. I got this Bible for memorizing Psalm 23. My friends, by God's grace, God's grace, I've been celebrating the gospel for 31 years. 31 years. Not perfectly. I'm growing in it. By God's grace, 31 years. I want to talk to the young people here this morning particularly. I know the culture says that as you reach your teenage years, there is a time of rebellion. Sowing your own oats of experiencing sin. Let me tell you, There's nothing more that you'll find out about sin that wasn't communicated at the cross. 
That's all you need to know. How wicked sin is. You don't need to go there. I categorically reject the fact that you need to rebel. God can keep you pure. He did it in my life. You can be pure. I don't care what the culture says here in South Florida in this day and age. You can be pure for your wedding day. I believe that. I've experienced that. So can you this morning. I did not live a sheltered upbringing or childhood, but the gospel has been my shelter for 31 years. My shelter, my refuge. The gospel has been my armor. We're in a fight. What's his armor? Ephesians 6. The helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplates of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. What does Paul talk about in that verse? What is the armor of God? It's the gospel. The gospel is your shelter. The gospel is your armor. The gospel is the sword of the spirit by which to fight. God can keep you pure. You can live as though it's been pured, sanctified to the day he returns. It is possible. That's why we celebrate the gospel. And may you celebrate the gospel this morning. With that in mind, I want to pray. And as I pray, could this worship team very quietly, softly come on up. Let us bow our heads. Let's not lose this moment. Oh, dear Jesus, thank you that you have delivered us for the penalty, the power, and the pollution of sin. Oh, may we experience that this morning. Refresh our souls as we sing. May we know, perhaps for the first time, what it means to celebrate the gospel, to sing these words. You know, they are true. Not just true in general, but they're true for me as a believer, that I can experience what we've talked about, this wholesale deliverance from the bondage of sin and the corruption and shame which sin brings. Father, fill our hearts to believe and to respond this morning. I pray for those who do not know what I'm talking about this morning. They have never celebrated the gospel. May this morning be the first time which they celebrate the gospel as they repent of their sin. Say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, and deliver me, and lead me into your arms. Holy Spirit, help us now as we celebrate. For we, of all people, have reason to celebrate this morning. Amen. Church, let us celebrate with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our soul right now.